Buddy, stop. Come back here. You can't bite the mail carrier. That's it. You're going to the shelter. I don't know what else to do with you. Millions of dogs are abandoned each year because of behavioral and aggression issues. If you are eager to find training content that fits your need and don't want to be overwhelmed by massive, unstructured online resources, check out Sniffy. You can customize your own training plan and learn how to train your dog with science-based positive reinforcement. Sniffy will also help you create your own daily practice list and establish your training routine. Download Sniffy, that's S-N-I-F-F-Y, on your App Store or Google Play Store today. Welcome to the Humane Roundup Podcast, where we share all the exciting stories about animal cruelty investigations, dangerous animals, and amazing rescues. Find out what goes on inside of animal shelters and all the current trends in the animal welfare industry. Now, here is your host, Daniel Edinger. Welcome to episode 89, and how's it going, Ashley Bishop? It's going, how are you? Well, I mean, I honestly, I couldn't be better. I'm sitting in sunny San Diego. I Honestly, if I could record here every week, I don't know. <laughs> I'm a little this, jelly. This place, it's a little incredible, too. Uh, we've only been here for like the last 18 hours or so, but it's been amazing. And so, just... <sighs> Yeah, I, I definitely am looking forward to the rest of the day, but I'm excited to talk to you, and we're going to have a great guest on here in a few minutes to talk about some legality stuff and how to build some cases. Yeah, that stuff is exciting. Yeah, it is. I'm I'm definitely looking forward to it. Well, and I saw you posted recently on social media that you've had an uptick in roosters in your area, and, and I, I saw some of the feedback, and I was a little disappointed with people where it was like, well, I mean, people are just buying chickens and sometimes, you know, they just get roosters, which is true, which is 100% true. But there's also something to be said if there's a lot of roosters, especially if they're going to be a lot on one property and individually housed, which we can talk a little bit offline more about as well. Yeah. Well, and the weird thing is, is these are, I'm in a situation where I will say that a majority of the families, they are Asian. Um, And so, and it's not even that they have multiple roosters. Usually it's been just one or two. Um, So I'm getting a lot of, we're using them for ritual or religious reasons. But I'm also getting told from, you know, Asian law enforcement officers. They're like, "Uh, yeah, they should only be having them for a couple of hours if that's the case. Interesting. So I'm, I'm well, stuck. Then, yeah. I mean, then you have to look at the conditions of the bird. I mean, we, you know, the religious freedom act does protect them from that. And so, you know, we can, we can dive into that a little more here in a little bit as well. And I just, you know, it, it puts you in a situation where you have to investigate, you got to figure out what they're, you know, what they are using them for what they're doing and, you know, just don't give up on it. Right. And yeah. use your resources that you do have and hopefully get something out of that so i didn't tell you this story but i do want to tell you that before we introduce our guest and again don't forget to like this podcast on apple podcasts or spotify share share and rate us or as ashley likes to say share and rate us 
uh, just make sure you're spreading the word. This is here for you. You know, we, we want to do this every week to give people an opportunity to just have something at their fingertips, whether they're in a small rural area or a big city. It's just an opportunity to share. And that's what we like doing on this show. So I will share this. And I honestly, I didn't even expect it to happen. I was called in to testify as a, honestly, as a witness to an investigation that I did. And then while I, while I got there, and this was actually in a different jurisdiction. So I, I did a follow-up in, in my city and then I was brought in to like testify on what conditions I saw the animals in, et cetera. And I was brought in by the public defender and when the DA got a hold of it, I guess the DA was able to, and we can ask our guest this here in a second, but was able to say, like, I couldn't testify to what I saw specifically because the animal that I saw, it was like a year after the crime had been committed. And so it was just a, a like a general welfare check on that, that animal to make sure it was healthy. And I, I guess they found that that was going to be uh, maybe like not relevant because it's just so long. And so they ended up, since I was there, they ended up introducing me as a, an expert witness, which is the first time in my career. So basically I couldn't talk specifically about the welfare check that I did, but I was asked multiple questions on the, well, like they actually showed me the case that they were arguing. And so I got to see several photos. I got to talk about the, the, I, you know, the whole, concept of like welfare and you know proper care and, and body condition scoring which was really interesting and i thought from the beginning that you know again i was brought in by the public defender and then introduced as an expert from the public defender and then the da argued that expertise because of i, I don't know maybe they just I, I i really don't know what their argument was but later got a phone call the day later from that DA apologizing and just saying that was part of the, you know, part of her spiel where she had to at least argue the fact that I was there as an expert. And, and I thought too, though, you know, I, I I'm coming in with just facts. Like, so if you're asking me questions or showing me photos, I'm just going to present the facts. And I think I ended up helping the DA's case more so than the public defender <laughs> at the end of it all. So. Nice. Kind of a, a unique experience and, you know, definitely one of those feathers to put in your cap. I've never been considered an expert up until that point. So uh, very um, excited to share that. That's pretty cool, actually. Um, it it would have been nice if they would have, you know, given you a little bit of a heads up, though. <laughs> yeah, that's the weirdest part. Like, it was really just thrown together at the last minute, but I'll take it. It's fine. So... Well, let's introduce our guest. I'm really excited to, uh, first of all, I've known Diane, who is our next guest, uh, for several years. And just to have her on the show uh, is really exciting for, for me, to, but uh, I think for our listeners, too. Because, Diane, you come with so much experience, whether it's working as a, a DA or working with ALDF or just doing things on your own. And we just want to welcome you to the program. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. I'm glad you're putting this information out there for your supporters and listeners. Good morning, and, Diane. Yeah. Good morning. It's great. It's honestly, and it's great to have people like you come on the program. I mean, you just have a wealth of experience, and I hope our listeners can, you know, whether it's they pick up something from the show or they reach out to me and Ashley and 
get in contact with you if they have further questions. Like that's that's our whole goal right there. I'm happy to help anyone. Uh, all I do now in my semi-retirement really is assist in the investigation and prosecution of animal crimes, and I'm happy to help and provide resources if necessary. Great. Can you tell some of our listeners that may not know who you are and what you did? Just sure. a little bit of your background. Sure. My name is Diane Balkin. I am from Denver, Colorado. I was a prosecutor in the Denver District Attorney's Office for 32 years, and I retired to take a job with Animal Legal Defense Fund, a national animal protection agency where I assisted on cases throughout uh, the country and um, did a lot of training. I trained veterinarians, animal protection officers, police officers, judges, uh, you name it. Um, and it's really my passion. It's exciting. Do, are, do you find that they are receptive to the training? It depends on the venue. It depends definitely on the location and definitely on the group. Uh, oftentimes there is a weak link, which is the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. It's how do you get certain groups to buy into the significance and importance of everything we do. Uh, I'm, I know that you had Phil Arco on the show, and it's really important for the general public as well as all professionals to understand the connection between animal cruelty and crimes against humans. Uh, but in answer to your question, Ashley, sometimes it's the prosecutors, sometimes it's the judges, sometimes it's the police, and sometimes it's more than that. And oftentimes, uh, depending on the locale, it might be simply a lack of resources, not a lack of interest. And you, you bring up a great point because we hear it all the time, whether it's traveling to other agencies or people giving us feedback on the program is they'll have a strong case. and they can't get their prosecutor to bite like it. And it's very frustrating for them. You know, they know that they have what they need that meets the probable cause, but the prosecutor just either doesn't think that it's necessary. They don't look at animals the same way other prosecutors may look at animals. And that's a, that's more of a national issue. And, you know, I don't know if that's something that you've seen just doing your seminars and things like that. But I guess my question would be like, how do we get, more consistency across the across the United States. I really think it's important to educate prosecutors and to provide them with the resources they need. Uh, many prosecutors, city attorneys, county attorneys, district attorneys, they are understaffed, under-resourced, and right now in the wake of COVID, they have this huge numbers of cases that were in the waiting room that are now coming to fruition. and many animal-related crimes are going to be at the bottom of the barrel. And um, also, many prosecutors are intimidated. They just honestly don't know what to do with a case involving an animal. As you know, we have to be the voice for the animal because they can never tell us what happened. That's why we turn in great measure to animal protection officers to help translate what happened to the animal in terms that everyone can understand about how they uh, suffer, how they're in pain, how these are, um, the circumstances are such that it is neglectful. Uh, but so it's, it's a big question, Daniel, and I've been struggling with it for years, but education and offering up of resources is really important. Let me just add to our listeners, seriously, if you're ha like, have your prosecutor listen to this episode or some of the other episodes that we've, 
we've had as well. And whether it's the one with Phil Arkow or David Hunt, like there's some really resourceful episodes here that can maybe help. And then we can put these prosecutors in touch with Diane or put them in touch with other people that may be able to help offer free, like free advice. You know, I mean, that's part of the thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was blessed that I was able to take on the investigations and the prosecution in Denver under the more than one elected district attorney. And I also became quite uh, involved in the veterinary community and that provided me with uh, an additional platform to reach people because everybody loves veterinarians and people have pets and kind of if you hit that nerve and you tell them how important it is and you provide them uh, with tactics, uh, you could be off and running. Are you seeing any change within the schooling or anything that is that they're focusing any more on the animal stuff, or are we still pretty much giving them bare bones? The, the lawyers I'm talking about here. You mean training <laughs> um, for lawyers? Yeah, like outside of, you know, when they're still in school, is, is there anything out there? Uh, there are several universities and colleges that offer special uh, education track on animal law. This would include both uh, criminal issues such as cruelty and neglect as well as civil issues or administrative issues but they are few and far between uh, and I know that the University of Denver Sturm College of Law has an animal law track but probably one of the best in the country is Lewis and Clark the Center for Animal Law Studies up in Portland Oregon uh, but no as a as a routine no uh, lawyers regardless of what side of the fence they're on, are not provided training on the importance of animal crimes. And it's often missed in uh, police training as well, and we're trying to change that. I am so glad you brought that up because I actually reached out to a friend of ours, Roland, who I'm sure you know, asking him if, you know, Colorado has... So Colorado created in 2013 a... I guess it's a law that requires all post-certified officers to be trained on understanding animal behavior, dog behavior specifically, so they don't end up shooting the dog. And so in that vein, I reached out to Roland and said, hey, have we ever discussed, has the state ever discussed anything about training our officers on what to look for for family violence or domestic violence and then the link into animal abuse? And he sent me information. I want to say it was actually Kentucky that may have floated a bill around uh, that that actually would require post-certified law enforcement officers to be trained on the domestic violence link to recognize it in animals. Or is that is that the correct state, Diane? Are you familiar with that? I, I am not familiar with that. I can tell you that the law you're referring to is called the Dog Protection Act, and it was specifically designed to train officers and I don't believe they have to be post certified on uh, encounters with dogs to try to prevent uh, a lethal ending and I don't know if it is still actively uh, in use at all because I believe CACO used to monitor it and I don't know who does yeah so I thankfully I I personally can say I've been training it at the police academy for at least the last three years uh, and so, as, as mentioned, I don't know about the online platform, but I was approached by the police academy to make sure that their new recruits are coming in and getting that training. So, 
And I, I know your audience is nationwide, but it's really important for at least Colorado police officers to know that a crime against an animal in the context of domestic violence, whether to cause, you know, to coerce or pressure or in any way affect the human victim of domestic violence is also considered domestic violence and all police officers should know that that comes under the actual statutory definition of domestic violence and they should be mandated uh, then to look deeper into this issue. I couldn't agree more and that's where I would love to see a trend and maybe some of our listeners have better you know just better response from their PD and, and it's not to throw negativity towards anybody that we work with it's just more so it's rare that we get a phone call from a police officer saying hey you know we were just out investigating this do you guys mind coming by and taking a look at the animal we have some concerns See, I, I think the best way to approach crimes against animals is a partnership between mm -hmm. animal protection agents and law enforcement agents unless of course they are one and the same it's been my experience that very few animal protection officers are post-certified or, you know, work in actually are housed with law enforcement. But it's really important to have that partnership because each faction comes with certain expertise. And I always tell police officers, call animal protection because they are trained to handle animals and we don't expect you to handle animals. And they'll understand the context of an animal that is in harm's way and help educate you. And likewise, animal protection officers that are not post-certified, that don't carry uh, weapons or are not able to execute warrants or arrest someone should definitely partner with the police for the safety of everybody involved. When you start getting involved in taking someone's animal or investigating them for harming that animal, uh, tempers can flare and it would be always advisable to have somebody with you uh, to ensure everyone's safety. There's so much truth to that. Um, and I mean, I feel like we kind of uh, kick the dead horse, if you will. <laughs> um, because we talk about that all the time on the show, that the animal people are a little on the crazy side. And a lot <laughs> of times they care more about their animals than they do their kids at times and things like that. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, definitely having that partnership is, is critical. And even if you don't work in your police department, go reach out to the police department and just say, Hey, can I sit down with a Lieutenant or something for, you know, half hour to an hour and just say, Hey, this is what I'm doing. And I could use some assistance on doing certain things or, you know, call me when you have these things. Sit down with somebody and just. Yeah, yeah, I would say, yeah, create a relationship. I also urge uh, both animal protection officers and police officers to uh, go visit veterinary clinics and shelters in their area to build a relationship as well, because in Colorado, Veterinarians are mandatory reporters of animal cruelty, and it's always good to have them know that they have a person they can call or have their cell phone number, 
etc. But this partnership with the police, sometimes it is so divided that we often see them pointing fingers at each other. Not my job, their job, not their job, my job. Um, and instead, you, you exponentially improve your resource and power base by collaborating with each other. The other thing I would throw in um, is that we become a little myopic about animal crimes and we look at veterinary forensics and the forensics uh, surrounding the animal and you should never lose sight of traditional crime scene investigation tools uh, and resources. So that's another reason to partner with the police because if you want to uh, collect DNA or have fibers analyzed or fur analyzed or if there's blood spatter or gunshot wound uh, it's really uh, wonderful to partner with the police and have them use their crime lab in conjunction with your investigation that's an amazing recommendation and i think like you said people look at it as like well i don't have those tools for animal crimes it's the same crimes whether it's you're investigating animal sex assault whether it's a dog-on-dog -dog attack. I just had a friend of ours in Colorado tell us about a case where they were able to prove a dog attack that killed another dog. I think it injured, it injured four dogs and killed one dog. It's something like that. But they, what they did is because there were two attacking dogs, they took the, they swabbed all the dogs that were injured. They got, you know, uh, some of the, they cut some of the fur. They got some blood that was, on the mouth of one of the attacking dogs. My point to all that is they were able to send off this DNA. They sent it to the University of Florida, actually, and had that analyzed there. And they were able to pinpoint out of the two attacking dogs, it was actually only one dog that, that did all the attacking and yeah. ended up killing the dog. It's pretty amazing stuff. It, it's a great idea. I've heard that uh, in more than one instance. Uh, it also can help. Uh, I always say that if you go into court, it's really wonderful if you have a belt and suspenders. And what I mean by that is that we often have a case with an eyewitness and no scientific evidence. And on the flip side, we might have scientific evidence, but no eyewitness. So if you can help um, corroborate what your witness says, it also strengthens your case. If, for example, a cat is beat to death with an umbrella, which is a true case out of New York City, uh, and you uh, save the umbrella, it can go for analysis for both DNA and fur to be matched to the cat. So, you know, I always just say partnership is everything. Absolutely. Diane, I want, yeah, go ahead, Ashley. I, I was going to say, Diane, can we talk about when you were prosecuting cases, what were some of the bigger problems that you saw, you know, holes in the cases, things that we can learn from that so that we can make sure that we're tightening up our cases and making them Absolutely. work. Absolutely. The thing I would start with first and foremost is the partnership with police because uh, at least in Denver, and I know Daniel can attest to this, sometimes there's a line drawn in the sand instead of a partnership and that caused a, a number of problems uh, and i've also seen over the decades the um that animal protection officers now have 
much more education and training on processing crime scenes. And in my early days, that was a problem that animal control officers just simply didn't know what to do or how to do it. And evidence was not collected or it was not stored. Uh, and, and that was a huge problem. Um, I always throw in when I'm doing a presentation about this topic is that never give up, never give up, never give up. Many cases are not perfect. You're going to have cases where evidence wasn't collected. It may or may not be a deal breaker, uh, but it's important to know the importance of chain of custody and collecting evidence. We had a case once um, uh, with a defendant who in a domestic violence situation stabbed a dog in the face multiple times, at least a dozen times. Uh, and it was a terrible, terrible case. And the animal control officer did not save the butcher knife. That actually, They had it. It had blood on it. And I don't recall if the officer misplaced it or lost it or threw it away. But I remember it being brought to my attention. So the good news was uh, we had an eyewitness to the event. She was able to look at photographs to find a photograph of a knife that looked like the knife and prosecutors can get creative and use a photo of a knife that looked like the knife and then of course they have to explain to the jury why they don't have the knife. Um, so uh, collecting evidence is a problem. The other issue is that in some states and jurisdictions, certain ordinances allow animal control officers to go onto property to give an animal food or water. And in some cases, they didn't realize that it stopped there and they would start an investigation because they had a right to be there to feed the animal and then they would investigate the cruelty or neglect allegations and you simply cannot do that and evidence gets suppressed. So uh, one of you said earlier, uh, I forget which, but these are crimes. I think it was you, Daniel, that animal cruelty, animal neglect, animal hoarding, animal fighting, these are crimes just like every other crime. And what happens is that we kick in all the constitutional protections for the accused. And I'm just hopeful that most animal control officers out there are aware of search and seizure issues and rights to an attorney issues um, and so on and so forth because the the sanction for collecting evidence unlawfully is that the evidence gets suppressed and then often you can't prove the case. Um, this is a huge topic, Ashley, so I, you know, I'm happy to discuss it further, but cases don't have to be perfect. Do the best you can, and uh, first and foremost, you should definitely be aware of the elements of the crime in your jurisdiction. So, and uh, there's so much to it, and honestly, we could talk for hours about it, and I often say that with guests, don't I, Ashley? I, I feel like <laughs> yes, <laughs> at least establishing, you know, establishing these conversations and then having you back on maybe for case studies and such as well. But I, I often hear officers, one of the areas that may get violated is curtilage. And I think that that's just Correct. for whatever reason, it's just such a I hard concept. Yes, exactly. Like it's just a hard concept for people. So Diane, if you don't mind to take a second to just maybe give a brief overview of curtilage and why that could come into play, I, I ultimately destroying a case if we violate that. That's, that, yeah, that's a great question, and I have a case on point. 
that I can share with you. Uh, let me begin by saying that when uh, you're executing a search warrant in an animal-related crime, there are certain things you should definitely ask for that you don't necessarily ask for in a crime with a human victim, particularly in large-scale cases. You definitely want to include cartilage, but you want to search above ground and below ground because you might have clandestine graves, particularly uh, in large-scale cases like I alluded to, like animal fighting. Much of the evidence in the Michael Vick case was gained because they got the warrant for uh, underground searching and clandestine graves and they were able to then analyze and find skeletons and evidence of, of dog fighting. Additionally, in uh, more rural jurisdictions, you want to make sure that you include outbuildings, garages, trailers, uh, anything that could be freestanding to house an animal that you wouldn't ordinarily think of because it's not necessarily a residence. Um, we also want to ask for, uh, when you seize the animals, you want uh, living, dead, and unborn. Because if you seize a pregnant animal and it gives birth, the owner slash defendant may lay claim to the puppies or kittens saying you didn't ask for the unborn as well. But back to curtilage. I just had to throw those in before I forgot about it. Um, curtilage uh, is kind of the area around a house. Uh, that is not in the house and it's not in the yard, but it's still in the person's property. There's this expectation of privacy for the um, area immediately uh, around the house that might contain information or evidence. I had a first-degree murder case where a 17-year-old stabbed uh, an 89-year-old woman to death, stabbing her 53 times. And he lived not maybe a mile and a half away from the victim. Uh, he lived with his mother and his grandmother and other family members. And when it, he, he was easily determined to be the suspect in the murder, and when the police went to his home, they uh, were they had a search warrant for the house, and they did not get a search warrant for the curtilage. One officer was walking around the house and opened the trash bin, which was right next to the house. Trash day was the next day. So the bin was still up next to the house, hadn't been rolled down to the street. They opened the lid and found the murder weapon right on top of the trash, and they seized it. The defense did a motion to suppress, saying that the curtilage was not included in the search warrant, which was true. And we argued that, uh, yes, that is true. We didn't have the warrant to cover curtilage. However, uh, we argued that uh, the property was abandoned and by having thrown it in the trash. So there was no expectation of privacy to go back and retrieve it. And we also argued the doctrine of inevitable discovery, saying that had it gone down to the curbside and the police opened it, they would have found it anyway. So we prevailed even though we didn't have it specifically included in the warrant, but I can tell you I never did that again. I never what made should that, that mistake. What should that officer have done in that scenario after opening that garbage can? He, 
He should have sealed it. Well, let first of all, they should have put curtilage in the warrant in the beginning, in, in the first sure. place. Yeah. It should yeah. just be, it should be part of the boilerplate language. Uh, and secondly, he or she should shut the trash can, secure it by having somebody placed right next to it so that nobody can disturb it and get a second search warrant. It's really bit. easy to do. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. Um, Talking a little bit more to that curtilage outside of the warrant. Roll up to a house. You know, obviously we have the right to go up to the front door. Correct. But at what point, so if there's a back door, if we know that there's a back or a side door, we have the right to go around the building, correct? To then knock on that door? That's not necessarily. Cool. Okay. Uh, See, that would this not is where I get confused. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, curtilage really is more the area around it. It's not front, back, you know, back door. But it all depends on the property. Uh, if it is fenced, you cannot go into the back unless you have a reason that you can articulate that you had to do so for officer safety uh, or to avoid the destruction of evidence or or hot pursuit. I mean, however, there are certain properties, let's say apartment buildings, where there's a front door and a back door um, that are readily accessible individuals to go in. So it's really going to be case specific. Does it make a difference? So we've got a couple of uh, houses in my jurisdiction that literally the entire house is fenced in we can then enter the fence to be able to even get to the front door to knock correct that one's the I struggled with uh, uh, yeah see yes you should um because uh, uh what i would note just for the record for example would be if they have a mailbox affixed to the right of the front door obviously the postal carrier has to go through the fence to go deliver the mail so right. there's some implicit permission people have to approach it or Amazon delivering um, it's more problematic if there's a gate in the front and it says no trespassing you cannot okay and just to recap Diane when when writing areas to be searched in the property it's gonna look something like you know if you're looking for a dog you might put home uh, you might put like shed, garage, and curtilage. You want to just write the term and curtilage? That is correct. Cool. Perfect. That's and you great. know what else? Uh, um, Google Maps is really valuable. If you can't get in, sometimes you're going to get a good aerial of the okay. home, and you'll have a lot better idea of the configuration of the space. Plus, a lot you can see in plain view. You can see if there's an attached garage or detached garage or a tool shed. Yeah. Or a dog, you know, enclosure. I know, this, I know this is probably going to be another completely separate topic, but we now have drones. Does, Correct. Do you have to have a warrant to use a drone? Uh, I would say yes. Okay. I mean, there's some privacy in the airspace. I think it it depends also... Uh, that's another way to partner with law enforcement because they probably have a protocol and an established practice about whether or not you can use them or not uh, and what is 
private and what is not because we often rely on drones. What happens if you get a complaint, a citizen complaint? Somebody was like, hey, I was flying my drone around and I, like, I didn't intend to do this, but I went over this backyard and can I, like, there's this, we'll just use, like, we can use a dog fighting example. There's like 20 dogs tied up back there and it just, it looks odd to me. How do, so, because like, you're not making them an agent since they already did that, right? Like, you're, they're not an agent of the, the city or whatever. But, so how do you use that information there? Okay, there's multiple ways. Number one, I would say to them, did you record the footage and give it, please give it to me. Sure, right? yeah. yeah. And, and authenticate it in terms of time, date, location. Sure. Uh, and they are not your agent. If they bring okay. it to you, they become... Um, be a witness? Uh, definitely. They're your witness. And then the, the bigger issue is what happens if they don't want to, they want to do Testify it. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Anonymously. Well, they're scared. They want to yeah. do it anonymously. So yeah. there's uh, different types of search warrants. Uh, one type of search warrant has what we call a citizen informant, where John Doe would say, I was flying my drone. I live about two doors down. This is the address. I saw it. I didn't mean to see it. Here's the footage. And my name is John Doe and I live at 123 Elm Street. So he's named in the warrant uh, with his name and address and the fact he has the video and what he has seen. Because he can give you an eyewitness account if there's a uh, tape of it you can then also put in the warrant. By the way, I looked at the tape and the tape is exactly what he said uh, is portrayed. If John Doe wants to be an anonymous informant, there's a whole other um, uh, protocol in place for law enforcement to have a search warrant based on an anonymous informant, or what we call them confidential informants, um, which you often see in drug cases. Then the question is, did you pay John Doe? Did he have any agency relationship? Do you know him? Is he reliable? What information did he give you that can be corroborated independently? Um, and you might be able to say, he told us that on the south of the house, there's a blue barrel with a dog attached to it. And you can go, let's say, to a neighbor's house and go to the second floor window and see the blue barrel on the south or north end of the house. So what you can do is make an attempt to corroborate what he has told you in order to show that his account is credible and believable. Plus, if you have the video, it speaks for itself. Uh, as a practice, and the person will likely have to come into realistic piece, but then it becomes incumbent upon you to work with the prosecutor to get um, you know all uh, about protection. what you can offer to help us. Uh, you've helped me on cases in the past, whether it be you know just like just questions or whether it be providing resources and even you know pointing me in the right direction to get uh, funding as well for certain things. So. I know that's that's super helpful. I, I just want to, I think, for our listeners, I think it's important to just list out some things. And I think we did that really well with the warrant. And I just, for you reviewing a case, something I've learned over my experience and time doing this job is understanding a timeline. Can you help officers just understand what that looks like when you're reviewing a case and why timelines are so important? Well, when I'm evaluating a case, I want to know the sequence and order of events because it, number one, helps me uh, 
visualize in my mind what happened because we really are all storytellers. You need to tell me what happened in an orderly manner. And it also translates to the fact that jurors want order uh, to the evidence they received. And often we have to put in evidence out of order. So if we have a broad timeline, it helps them put the pieces together about what happened when and who saw what. So uh, to the best of an investigator's ability, it's great to document uh, when things happened. And I always say when you're, uh, I throw in little tactics all the time. Sometimes when you do get videotaped um, evidence, you need to confirm with the person that took the video that the timestamp is accurate because sometimes the timestamp on a video will deviate from the date or the true time. So uh, it just helps everybody understand what happens. It gives some logic to it and it also makes you understand that things could have happened in the way we say they happened uh, rather than confuse the issue. But also the lack of a timeline isn't critical if it can be replicated uh, putting everything together later. That makes sense. Absolutely. So document everything is, is really important for our listeners and just understanding what goes into these cases. We don't necessarily have to be perfect when it comes to you know times and dates specifically but generalizing certain things and getting i mean there there are times and there's resources available for us um, for like collecting bugs around a body if needed right like they can determine the the time that that animal is dead during the necropsy and things like that so there's a lot of resources as explained in other programs that we've had on this on you know on this podcast as well throughout so check into those uh, we talked about the ASPCA forensic lab that can offer free services and really provide great documentation of some of these crimes against animals. So, Diane, we really, really appreciate you taking the time out this morning to come on the show. We, you know, we just we value all of our guests and and really hope to continue to have these conversations as we move through the program. We didn't get to it today. I know you and I talked offline. Uh, but maybe having you back on specifically for some of those case studies that we did talk about would be pretty good for our listeners as well. So, Yeah. The other thing I think they would benefit from is the whole concept of testifying and mm -hmm. getting ready to talk in court and be cross-examined, etc. Let's do that. Uh, if you'd be okay. willing to do that, let's have an sure. episode about testifying, cross-examination, and maybe a case study sure. as well. Cool. Well, again, thanks for for joining us. Bishop, do you have any follow-up for Diane before we wrap up? Diane, you said that you um, do some training. Is that kind of all over the country? Is Are we able to uh, get our listeners in touch with you to bring them in to train their Absolutely. PAs? I actually also just did one in Brighton, Colorado for police, and it was four hours long, and that was just a drop in the bucket. Okay. Fantastic. So I'm happy to do any training anywhere, and we might be able to find funding for that as well. Awesome. So reach out, please. Anybody listening, reach out. We'll get you in touch with Diane, and she's an amazing resource and such a great advocate for what we do. And we need more people like you, Diane, for sure. Th thanks so much for inviting me. You bet. Thank you. Everyone listening, we appreciate. Check us out again on our Instagram and Facebook, Humane Roundup. Don't forget to like and share the podcast. And as always on the Humane Roundup, we like to say, keep it humane, humane. humane.
Good stuff.